Okay, ladies and gentlemen, in the interests of, uh, of getting started, I would like to start. Are you with me so far? Uh, this room is uh, oddly divided, but I, nothing can be done about that, I think. Uh, are we on? The sound is on? We're ready to go? Well, then let me officially say to you, welcome to Socrates in the City. It is a great joy uh, to see so many of you here this evening and to see so many of you here this evening. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you are here? Would you raise your hand if you're here? I'm just curious. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we'll take photographs and we'll count later. But um, the National Park Service says 1.1 million, so just so you know. Um, it is great to be in the Union Club. It's great to be in the Union Club. Um, now, I'm curious, how many of you were with us two weeks ago when we heard from Alice von Hillebrand? Would you raise your hands? Yeah. See, we've got the big Catholic contingent. Very interesting. Very, but why are you here tonight? Weigel's an evangelical with no intellectual depth whatsoever. You just uh, want to taste, taste that. Okay. Um, well, the fact, of the, the, thing, the fact of the matter is that the last time, to only two weeks ago at the Union League Club, those of you who were with us remember that as I was talking just before uh, Alice von Hildebrandt spoke, um, my comments were punctuated by the disturbing, shattering sound of a uh, bulldozer-sized jackhammer literally just outside the window. Uh, it, was, it was very disturbing. Um, if any of you have loose fillings as a result of that, uh, you are perfectly willing, I mean, perfectly uh, welcome to join my lawsuit against the Union League Club. It was, un, it was really unbelievable, and thanks to Justin for bribing the uh, Union official uh, and getting that uh, hydraulic equipment shut down on time. Um, I don't know what they were doing out there. They're still doing it. Somebody said that Dick Cheney travels to, to New York and he's having a bunker built or something like that, but it, it was... Uh, it was, it was surreal. Now, every time we have an event at the Union Club, lots of people sign up for Socrates in the city. They pay their money, and they make their way to the Union League Club. Okay, that's one. Anybody else? Would you raise your hand? If you made your way to the Union League Club before you got here, see, the folks who made their way to the Union League Club are still en route to the Union Club right now. I just got an email from somebody asking me, where is that event? It's at 69th and Park Avenue. It's 69th and Park, okay. Now, if, if you, um, if, I literally got an email. Uh, if you are here uh, having first gone to the Union League Club, a little, um, we've got a little gift for you. If you made that mistake, and you did, who raised your hand here? If you made that mistake, you get a free copy of my children's book, Squanto and the First Thanksgiving. <laughs> Uh, you do. I'm not kidding. You get that. Because Squanto, as you'll remember, was taken way, way out of his way before he got to where, where he needed to go. So, um, so if you made that mistake, and anybody else who comes in late, if they've made that mistake, you get a free copy of Squanto. I'll sign a copy for you. I believe in rewarding failure. Um, not that I'm a socialist per se. It's, I'm just saying that I believe in, in rewarding failure. Please. Um, um, also, on your seats, there were copies of the Hildebrand Legacies newsletter. Did some of you get those or whatever? Um, a large part of why we do Socrates in the City is to introduce uh, pseudo-sophisticated Manhattanites like yourselves uh, to, to um, speakers and thinkers and, and books and ideas uh, with which they may have been unfamiliar. And I think that uh, there were a lot of people there last time who just came because they enjoy Socrates in the City, and they really were tickled pink to have discovered Alice von Hildebrand. We'd love for you to maintain a connection with uh, Alice von Hildebrand, with the Hildebrand legacy. So there are newsletters scattered around here. Um, please uh, avail yourself of those. There may be some over there uh, as well. Um, 
as far as that goes, have a look at our uh, book table before you leave tonight, if you haven't done so already, uh, at our CD table. We really do hope that you will dig deeper, that if you missed a talk, that you'll, you'll buy the talk, you'll share it with friends. Uh, these books are spectacular. We don't just let anyone have their books here. Our only, only people who've spoken here, with the exception of C.S. Lewis, but he will speak here. Uh, he, we're going to get him. We're gonna, once he hears that Weigel spoke here, he's going to say, oh, oh, okay. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is that these are, these are spectacular resources, and I recommend them to you. It's, it's a big part of why we're here, because you can't possibly solve the world's problems in 45 minutes or an hour. But if you take some of these books home with you, I think you'll get a little bit closer. So please do that. Uh, also, um, how, how many of you were, were with us in March at the University Club to hear Robbie George talk on what is marriage? Anybody? At that, at that, yes, a group, a, a large group of you. It was, as you know, if you were there, a spectacular talk, very philosophically uh, rigorous, which is a nice way of saying it was long. <laughs> but he warned us it would be long, and, and he delivered. Um, but it was wonderful. It was wonderful. CDs of that are available. Um, First Things Magazine has also done us the great favor of printing a, uh, publishing a printed version of uh, Robbie George's talk. It's somewhat condensed because they don't have unlimited pages at first things. But, uh, but uh, he swore he couldn't condense it, but they, I guess they forced him to. But um, we have a link. Um, actually, I've got a link to that first things article on my website. If you can remember how to spell my name, ericmetaxas.com, right in my website, uh, you can go and check out the Robbie George uh, talk if you missed it here or if you'd like to send it to a friend. I, I hope you will do that because it was spectacular. Nothing's more important right now than that big question of what is marriage, and we do not shrink from the big questions at Socrates in the City, as you know. Um, while you're at my website, I should say, if you go to ericmetaxas.com, you may notice there's an article about Jimmy Carter um, eating a live frog on the TV program 60 Minutes. Uh, I have no idea how that article got on my website unless uh, I wrote it and snuck it there myself. Um, but if that, if that was the case, I really wouldn't want to reveal that. You know. So let's just say that a, a little birdie put it there, a, uh, a web-savvy little birdie. Um, but I do recommend it to you, and I hope that you'll read it as soon as possible. EricTax.com, Jimmy Carter eats live frog on 60 Minutes. Thank you. Um, now... It is almost always the case that when we do Socrates in the City, um, I say to people, we're having so-and-so, we're having George Weigel, and you get usually two responses because we have a, a, a wide kind of audience. One response is, who, who's that? People have no idea who that is. Well, that's why we do Socrates in the City, because I want to introduce people to people like George Weigel and to his books. That's the point of this. That's the point of this. Uh, the other response uh, we get when people, uh, when I ask people or I say to people we're going to have George Weigel coming in October, is George Weigel? How did, how did you get George Weigel? What did you do? Who are you? Who do you know? Um, I, I don't know. We just, we just did somehow. Um, but those are the two responses I tend to get. And so if you are really, really impressed and thrilled, that's great. If you have no idea what to look forward to, that is equally great, because I think by the time this is over, you'll be uh, equally impressed. Um, so as I say, tonight we have the privilege from hearing from Dr. George Weigel. He is a distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is a Catholic theologian and one of America's leading public intellectuals. He is also a native of Baltimore. Uh, he has held so many posts and done so many things that I will only mention a few. He's the author or editor of um, 20 books, including the one he will uh, discuss tonight, The Cube and the Cathedral, Europe, America, and Politics Without God. He's written essays, op-ed columns, reviews for the major opinion journals and newspapers in the United States, with the notable exception of High Times. <laughs> he, is a, please, he is a contributor to Newsweek. Are they still publishing that? I, 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 are they? I didn't even... Um, he's a frequent guest on TV and radio and is a Vatican analyst for NBC News. His weekly column, The Catholic Dif Difference, is syndicated to 60 newspapers. From 1989 through June 96, Weigel was president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is the author of the spectacular, monumental, 1,000-page biography of Pope John Paul II titled Witness 
to hope. We have copies of that here. I hope if you don't know of it, you will grab a copy and perhaps get him to sign it. That book has been translated from English into French, Italian, Spanish, Polish, Portuguese, Slovak, Czech, Slovenian, Russian, and German, and then back into English. <laughs> Chinese, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Chinese, uh, but there is an English version, I promise you. Chinese and Romanian editions are in the works, I'm told. A documentary film based on the book was released in the fall of 2001 and has won numerous prizes. Dr. Weigel has been awarded the Papal Cross Pro Ecclesia et Pontifici. How do you say that? Pontifici? Pontifice, he tells me. And I think he would know, having been awarded that wonderful papal cross. Also, the Gloria Arts Artist Gold Medal by the Republic of Poland. Note to self, breathe here. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to read that, sorry. Uh, it says in the bio that I have on Dr. Weigel uh, that he's been awarded 12 honorary doctorates. Now, I have to say this strikes me as possibly being a typographical error. But if not, then I, then I confess to being puzzled because I think common sense tells us that surely once you hit, I don't know, eight or ten <laughs> honorary doctorates, you probably think, you know, maybe one of these honorary doctorates could go to someone who doesn't have an honorary doctorate. <laughs> because why... Right. If, if I may paraphrase Lady Bracknell from The Importance of Being Earnest, <clears throat> to earn six honorary doctorates, Dr. Weigel, may be regarded as good fortune, but to earn 12, sir, looks like carelessness. <laughs> Thank you. Now listen, folks, I, I got to... I'm afraid I have to come clean. I have to come clean with you because you see, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have a single honorary doctorate. <laughs> and I, when I hear that someone has, you know, a dozen of the suckers, <laughs> it, it, it stings a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. And what, what I think really hurts is that I've been working on getting my honorary doctorate for years and years. I've even written a 600-page biography, okay? Now, granted, it's, it's not a 1,000 pages, but, but, but you know, I, I'm doing my best to earn one. And when I read that somebody has busted into the double digits on the honorary doctorate score, it's just, it's just a little humbling. Nonetheless, he has earned 12, and we... we we move ahead. We move ahead. I'm gonna, I'll get past it. Now, proper protocol dictates that one address someone with 12 honorary doctorates as doctor, 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 doctor. But of course, our speaker is a humble man. He absolutely insisted that I not do that. Uh, he said three doctors should suffice, in as much as three implies infinity. Um, we, we like the kid. Please don't leave. Um, now. To put things in context, anybody who's overwhelmed with the awards Dr. Weigel has earned can content himself with this fact. Even though Dr. Weigel is not George W. Bush, he has yet to earn the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, he has, Dr. Weigel and his wife Joan have three children and one grandchild. They live in North Bethesda, Maryland. It is a great pleasure to give you Dr. 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 George Weigel. Thank you very much, Mr. Metaxas. And I, first thing tomorrow morning, I will call Father Jenkins at Notre Dame and see if they want a sensible commencement speaker next year. <laughs> to whom they can give an honorary degree. That is, if I get out of here tonight, I have to confess that when invited to address something called Socrates in the City, 
one does wonder the, about the content of the cocktail to be offered the speaker at the end uh, of the evening. But perhaps I will let Mr. Metaxas be my taster for the uh, course of the evening. It's a great uh, pleasure to be here. I've heard a lot about this. I didn't realize it began with a ritual of humiliation, but um, that's okay. That's, that's okay. I have three grown children, and I know all about humiliation. <laughs> this uh, story that I'd like to unfold tonight uh, began for me uh, 12 years ago. It was 1997. I was in Paris in the course of preparing the biography of John Paul II to watch him do a World Youth Day. I hadn't been in Paris in over 30 years, so on a free afternoon, I decided to revisit some places that I had remembered from my uh, boyhood and see some things I hadn't seen before. And one of the things I wanted to see was a, a large new development on the west uh, side uh, of, of Paris called La Défense, a mixed-use area of offices and upscale shops and upscale flats and things of that sort, in the middle of which was uh, the official French monument to the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen of 1789. It was called the Great Arch of La Défense. And those of you who have seen it know that it is a striking object indeed. It is a 40-story tall open cube, 40 stories tall, faced with uh, 348 feet wide. Please notice that I use Anglo-Saxon measures, not French Revolution terminology here. It is faced with 247 acres of white Carrara marble. And in a very, on a very hot August afternoon, it's literally dazzling. The top three stories of this colossal open cube, the Great Arch of La Défense, uh, have office space in them in which was located, appropriately enough, uh, by the perspective of President Mitterrand, the International Foundation for Human Rights. Because, as I say, this great arch of La Défense was intended as the official memorial to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. You can get up to the top through a, uh, an outdoor uh, lift, which is not for people who suffer from vertigo, uh, and from the top it's a simply spectacular view of one of the great cityscapes uh, in the world. You can look down uh, the Champs-Élysées through the Arc de Triomphe to the Ile de la Cité, and there in the far distance is the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which every piece of literature about the great arch of La Défense brags would fit inside the great arch. You could fit Notre Dame, spire, towers, all of it, inside the great arch. And as I was wandering around on the roof on that blazingly hot, bright August 1997 afternoon, looking from the cube to the cathedral, the thought entered my mind which culture would better protect the rights of man, which culture would even understand the rights of man. The culture that produced this stunning but featureless, geometrically perfect but humanly empty cube, or the culture that had produced far away in the distance the bosses and gargoyles, the stone and glass, the holy eccentricity if you will, of Notre Dame and the other <clears throat> uh, Gothic cathedrals of Europe. That question banged around in the back of my mind for six years until 2003, 
when I became aware of an enormous debate in Europe that drew virtually no attention here in the United States. In 2004, the European Union was expanding from 10 members to, uh, sorry, from 15 members to 25 members, and a new constitutional treaty had been devised to govern this newly expanded European Union, which was incorporating into itself the new democracies of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, liberated in 1989 uh, from communism. And the Constitution-making was not pretty. The United States Constitution fits onto eight pages. This European Constitutional Treaty was 467 pages. But in all of that verbiage, the biggest argument was about the first dozen sentences, the preamble. Because the preamble is where this new constitution for Europe would define what the new Europe was about and where those commitments were rooted. And the fight was whether Christianity could be acknowledged as one of the sources of contemporary Europe's commitments to human rights, democracy, civility, tolerance, the rule of law, all the good stuff. And the answer from the drafting committee was no, that the source of contemporary Europe's commitment to human rights, democracy, the rule of law, civility, tolerance, and all the good stuff was, as they put it in the draft that I became aware of in 2003, uh, the classical heritage, Socrates, uh, the Enlightenment, and contemporary thought. And as I wrote at the time, it seemed a little weird to say that nothing of consequence for the building of a decent human society in Europe had happened between Marcus Aurelius and Descartes. That's 1,300 years, which is a hell of a long time for nothing to have happened. But the ferocity of this argument, which was truly brutal, up and down uh, Europe, suggested that something more was going on here than a deliberate act of historical amnesia. What was going on here was a project, a project intending to create to borrow a phrase from the late Father Richard Newhouse, a European naked public square. Secularism in its most stringent construal was, by means of this preamble, to be subtly declared to be the official ideology of the new European Union. Uh, or, if you preferred your lethal cocktails more postmodern than uber secularist, we had at this time a famous op-ed piece written by the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas and the French philosopher Jacques Derrida in which uh, these two immensely influential intellectual figures in the high culture of Europe claimed that the new Europe must be, quote, neutral between worldviews. Neutral between worldviews. You know, there's your truth and my truth, but who knows what's the truth? Or as The Onion put it when a few years later Jacques Derrida went to a different place, Derrida is, quote, dead, unquote. Um, this seemed a very strange business, this proposal to erect a living political community uh, around not only a hollow shrine, but a shrine that would be kept deliberately scoured of any transcendent moral reference points, much less spiritual, much less biblical reference points. All of this began to seem even more odd to me when I became a demographics bore. I started reading lots of studies of European demographics because I was trying to answer a question. Why was an entire continent wealthier, healthier, more secure than ever before in its history 
ceasing to produce the human future in the most elementary sense of creating the human future, creating next generations. For at the time of this debate over whether Europe could acknowledge Christianity, or if you will more broadly, biblical religion, as one source of its commitment to human rights, uh, Europe had ceased to reproduce itself. There was not a single member state of this newly expanded European Union that had a replacement-level total fertility rate generally figured to be 2.1 uh, children per woman during the course of her childbearing years. This generic sterility, if you will, uh, became even more dramatic when one looked at particular cases. For example, the case of Germany, which several years ago seemed fated by 2050, which is, after all, not that far away, uh, to lose in German population the equivalent of the entire population of the old East Germany. Or Spain, which in that same time frame, between the middle of this first decade of the 21st century and the middle of the 21st century, was on the present demographic evidence uh, to lose one quarter of its population. Or, perhaps most dramatically of all, to American audiences who continue to imagine Italy as a country uh, whose culture is symbolized by Sunday pranzo with uh, grandmother and grandfather and father and mother and multiple children uh, to the third and fourth generation. On present rates of reproduction, by 2050, 60% of Italians will not know from personal experience what a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, or a cousin is. Those will simply be words in a dictionary. Because when one child, when the, when the single child marries the single child and has a single child, etc., etc., for a certain period of time, as my friend Nick Eberstadt, who is a very distinguished demographer, says, the canoe is over Niagara Falls, and it's only a question of how big the splash is going to be at the bottom. This seemed to me utterly and completely bizarre. I mean, yes, Europe had had a difficult 20th century, but it had pulled out of that with a little help from its friends on this side of the Atlantic, and yet people had simply stopped having children. And I wondered whether these two realities, this determination in European high culture, to scour biblical religion out of the uh, intellectual, political, social, cultural horizon of the new Europe, and this dramatic, uh, indeed unprecedented in human history, short of uh, famines, plagues, and devastating wars, this unprecedented depopulation uh, of an entire continent might not have something to do with each other. And at that point, I was still in the midst, uh, thank God, of an extended personal conversation with Pope John Paul II. And in discussing these problems, about which he wrote very importantly in 2003 in an apostolic letter called The Church in Europe, which I commend uh, to all of you, uh, it, the phrase crisis of civilizational morale came to my mind that what was going on here in Europe that was producing these bizarre attempts to rewrite history, to create a manifestly weird political future, stopping having children, being very resentful of suggestions that biblical religion might have something to say to how human beings ought to live together decently that all of this suggested a civilizational morale crisis in which Europeans, first in their high culture and later as that eked out uh, into a general cast of mind, 
had simply lost faith in their own civilizational enterprise, the civilizational enterprise that had been built, obviously, to anyone who knows any history, on the foundations of Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome. Biblical religion, Greek rationality, Roman law. We'll come back to that in a minute. In searching for an understanding of how this had happened, I went back and reread uh, a remarkable book written in the midst of the 20th century, indeed right in the middle of the Second World War, by the French Catholic thinker Henri de Lubac, who in 1942 asked himself the question, why is it? that a continent which, at the turn into the 20th century, had been manifestly the center of world civilization, full of energy, full of a humanistic confidence in the future, sure that science would provide the keys to a, uh, a much different and richer life for everyone. Why had this civilization produced within itself, within less than 50 years, two world wars, three totalitarian systems, the Gulag, Auschwitz, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, the greatest religious persecutions in recorded human history. What happened? What on earth happened? And Father de Lubach's answer to that was that what had happened was that a phenomenon that he called atheistic humanism had conquered European high culture and had gradually eroded the confidence of the peoples of Europe, many of the peoples of Europe, in the civilizational enterprise of which they were a part to the point where they could become possessed by the kinds of passions of nationalism and the lack of any sense of moral reason that had led to the slaughters of the First World War. Atheistic humanism, Father de Lubach argued, was a genuine novum, something really new in human history. Because as he writes in the book, if you think back to the classical or ancient world, the God of the Bible comes to that world as a liberator. He's not like the gods of Greece. He doesn't manipulate human beings. The gods do not manipulate human beings. This god does not manipulate human beings like the gods of the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, and the Aeneid manipulate human beings for their amusement. I mean, when you think back to reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, I mean, the strongest of men, Achilles... Odysseus, etc., in the end, are merely the playthings of the gods. Or think of the situation of ancient Israel in, uh, in the Middle East uh, and the constant temptation uh, to worship Moloch, who demands the sacrifice of the young uh, to appease his uh, bloodlust. Uh, the God of the Bible comes into that kind of a world, not as an oppressor, but as a liberator. Yet, this body of thought that de Lubach described it as atheistic humanism turned that experience inside out and upside down such that the God of the Bible had become in the minds of crucially important European thinkers of the 19th century the enemy of human liberation. And the God of the Bible had to be thrown over the side, so to speak, uh, if men and women were to achieve a genuine human maturity. We could spend a, an awful lot of time this evening and on many evenings picking apart uh, the details of this argument. Uh, I'll simply mention four figures whom de Lubach cites as crucial in the process of creating this atheistic, humanistic cast of mind. Uh, the Frenchman Auguste Comte with his positivism, the only real knowing is that knowing which can come through the scientific method. The subjectivism of the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, for whom the God of the Bible is merely a projection 
of humanity's noblest aspirations, the materialism of Karl Marx, in which history is simply the byproduct, the gas fumes, the exhaust fumes of economic, impersonal economic processes in history, all of which somehow come to a dramatic point of uh, development in Friedrich Nietzsche and the will to power and the, the creation of the superman who has transvalued values, etc., etc., etc. This analysis of Delubox began to make sense to me of something that I had long wondered about, uh, which was not why did the First World War start, but why didn't it stop in November 1914? It's very clear why the First World War started. It started because of German imperial ambition. But if you read a remarkable book by the uh, American historian David Frumkin, who teaches at Boston University, a great little book called Europe's Last Summer, a portrait of European culture and politics in the summer of 1914. You begin to see how this body of thought, certainly not coherent, Comte, Feuerbach, Marx, Nietzsche, others were very different cats here, but the generalized project, if you will, of the debunking, as they imagined it, of biblical religion in the name of human liberation. You can see in Frumkin's account of European culture and politics on the eve of the First World War what that had done to the nations of Europe. It had eroded the idea of moral reason in the very continent which had given the world the idea of moral reason, such that when the guns of August 1914 begin firing, and yet by late October 1914, it's very clear to everybody that the, <clears throat> that the uh, quick victory of somebody, which everyone expected was not going to happen, at that point, what do they do? They don't say, time out, let's see what the heck's going on here. They dig trenches, and they settle down for four years of unprecedented slaughter which simply kicked the guts out of European civilization at the beginning of the 20th century. No one had the moral authority in Europe as the train is about to go over the cliff to pull the stop cord and, and, and keep the train from going over the cliff. And no one had that moral authority because the very idea of moral authority had been so eroded and replaced by, in particular, extreme uh, forms of nationalism which um, could not conceive uh, of a negotiated settlement uh, to this conflict. And then something else began to come clear in my head. I remembered how the late, great Jean Kirkpatrick used to say that the 20th century really didn't run from 1900 or 1901 to 1999 to 2000. That's a, that's a calendrical accident. Uh, as the uh, 19th century arguably ran from 1776 to the beginning of the last century, the 20th century, the real human drama of that period, of that moment in history, ran from 1914 to 1991. Because everything that happened in the world after 1914 in some sense happened because of 1914 the uh, rise of this hypernationalism, the collapse of European self-confidence, the collapse of traditional forms of government, the Great Depression, the rise of totalitarian systems, the Second World War, the Cold War, the whole story in somehow unfolds from 1914 to 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union itself a byproduct of the guns of August 1914. And it seemed to me, if that was true, if Gene was right about that, that's the 20th century, then we couldn't see how the moral, spiritual, cultural stuffing had been kicked out of the center of world civilization until all of the rubble had been cleared off the chessboard in 1991, and you could begin to see the effects for what they truly were. This is not a happy picture. Uh, 
This is not a happy picture. The American Jewish legal scholar Joseph Weiler uh, has described contemporary European high culture in his pungent phrase as Christophobic, absolutely phobic about biblical religion, but particularly about Christianity. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has given this a slightly uh, less pungent formulation in writing of exclusivist humanism, a humanism which excludes all transcendent moral reference points, much less spiritual reference points, from its uh, purview. Another European thinker named Joseph Ratzinger described the effects of all of this on April 18th, 2005, as, quote, the dictatorship of relativism. A very carefully chosen phrase uh, created by the present pope to send a warning signal to what happens to a culture that spends too much time playing, if you will, in the sandbox of postmodernism. Where, as I said at the beginning, there might be your truth and my truth, but there's nothing called the truth. Well, if there's only your truth and my truth, and neither one of us recognizes something called the truth, then when your truth comes into conflict with my truth, and we ain't got any way to settle the argument by reference to a larger horizon of truth, then one of two things is going to happen. You will impose your power on me, or I will impose my power on you. And that, Ratzinger said, is the dictatorship of relativism in which, obviously, the great and noble experiment of democracy becomes virtually impossible and ultimately, uh, indeed, quite implausible. I said a moment ago that European civilization, as I understand it and as I believe most historians of whatever religious conviction or no religious conviction, uh, understood it until very recently, uh, the civilization of Europe, of which we here in the United States are, are clearly a part, was built on three foundations. Uh, biblical religion, Greek confidence in reason, and the Roman claim that law, rather than the sheer exercise of power, was the path to justice. The God of the Bible, who teaches moral responsibility. Uh, the Greeks, who teach us the arts of reason, Rome, which teaches us the majesty of law. That's, those are the three legs of the stool, if you will. Now, if you kick out one of those legs, say the leg marked Jerusalem, by throwing the God of the Bible over the side, as the project of atheistic humanism proposed to do, you have then got a very wobbly stool. You've then got a very wobbly stool. Now, if you then kick out reason, you know where you land. You know, you know where you boom. Uh, when European civilization loses its faith, and here I'll use an explicitly Christian theological term, loses its faith in the logos, loses its faith in God imprinting his rationality on the creation, such that we, through the exercise of minds created in the divine image and likeness, can reach into that reality and touch the truth, however incompletely. When that confidence goes, it seems, when that faith goes, it seems, at least on the present evidence, that the Athenian school stool can't carry the weight of reason by itself. And so you have in uh, contemporary European high culture, and increasingly in our own, this loss of faith in reason, uh, the attempt to find uh, a safe harbor in the postmodernist claim of, well, I'll respect your truth if you respect uh, my truth, which is no safe harbor at all. If we have lost faith in reason because we have lost faith in the God of the Bible, uh, then we are unable to give an account. We can't explain why 
human rights, democracy, civility, tolerance, the rule of law, and all the good stuff is in fact good. All we can do is say what was being said during that debate over the European Constitutional Treaty in 2003, and that is, well, we believe in those things because they work better. Give an essentially pragmatic or utilitarian answer. You know, the world is a messy and complicated place. There are lots of people. They all think different things. It's just easier to get along by acknowledging truth, 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 truth. And yet, now Europe, because of the demographic problem that I described to you, is being populated, vacuums don't last, including demographic vacuums, is being populated from people from a different civilizational orbit who believe they do have the truth and are prepared to assert that, sometimes in very dramatic and even violent ways. So the ultimate pathos of this 2003 argument is that in the name of defending human rights, democracy, civility, tolerance, the rule of law, against the alleged encroachments of the God of Israel and the God of the Church, Europe has put itself in a position of being able to give no account of its commitments to the very things it seemed it deemed to be threatened by the God of the Bible. Uh, what does this have to do with us? Uh, a lot, I think. Um, we're in a different situation culturally. Uh, we're also in a different situation historically. The sad fact of the matter is that uh, the modern political project uh, came to Europe, continental Europe in particular, as a project against Christianity. Uh, that was not true here in the United States. That has made an enormous difference over time. Uh, we have a much more robust uh, and genuinely pluralistic public square than is available in any part of uh, Europe except some of the new democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. But what this all means for us is, I think, to be understood on the analogy of those coal miners who in the early days, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, before proper ventilation of mine shafts, would take a canary in a cage down into the mine shaft with them. And when the canary started getting wobbly, it was a sign that the air was becoming too toxic. And when the canary went toes up, that was a time for everybody to get out because the surrounding ecology, if you will, was insufficient to sustain life. Uh, as much as it pains me, and I, it should pain everyone uh, to say this, uh, present-day Europe, in this crisis of civilizational morale, having chosen the cube over the cathedral, is acting for us as the canary in the mine shaft. Uh, it is getting very, very wobbly, and some parts of it may go toes up, uh, in the not-too-distant uh, uh, future. This is a real uh, warning to us who are the children of Europe, whose uh, civilization here in the North uh, American world is Europe transplanted. Uh, it's a real warning signal that we, uh, we discard any of those three legs of the stool of Western civilization, Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome, uh, very much uh, at our uh, peril. In that um, apostolic letter of 2003 that I mentioned, The Church in Europe, which you can find at www.vatican.va and just punch Ecclesia in Europa into the search engine and it'll come up. Uh, John Paul II quite strikingly used the, the New Testament book of Revelation as the biblical framework for this analysis. Not in an apocalyptic sense, but I think in a much more subtle way. As those of you familiar with that work know, it's addressed to the seven churches of what 
we call Asia Minor and what was then the Roman province of Asia, central Anatolia in present-day Turkey. Uh, Not one of those seven churches is a living Christian community today. Uh, They were overcome by a different civilizational enterprise. They are in the main uh, Christian communities of either extremely small numbers or dead. I mean, the sand, having the, the, the civilization of Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome ran into the sand and died there. And I think what the Holy Father was, was suggesting with that image is that there is nothing guaranteed about this project called Western civilization. Uh, we may have more wealth, more power measured in material terms. We may even have all of the right ideas structurally and functionally about how you make markets operate, how you make democratic political communities operate. But if you hollow out the shrine, if you indeed deliberately create a hollow shrine at the center of those institutions, then you are risking a great, great deal. Because the present evidence, as alas provided by our cousins across the Atlantic, is that uh, a Europe without God shortly becomes a Europe without Europeans, and that is the end, ultimately, of human rights, democracy, civility, tolerance, the rule of law, and all of those things for which we have labored so long and so many have sacrificed so much. That is not a particularly happy picture to present you with on uh, October 14th, 2009, but I think it's an accurate one. Uh, And uh, we are now at a point in this process where uh, real honesty about what the state of play is, I think is required if there is to be any hope of a turnaround uh, in Europe uh, and if we are to be able to avoid um, this uh, fate of dying from boredom uh, here in our own country. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Weigel. We now have some time for uh, Q&A. As you know, if you'd like to ask a question, there's the microphone. You must stand, walk to the microphone, and then in 18 syllables or less, um, putting your question in the form of a question, uh, ask your question. Uh, we were, this was uh, a lot of glorious uh, material, so um, let, let's begin. Stoddard, thank you. Uh, professor, um, I hear you say that we should be concerned about the wobbly character of Europe and its hints as to what it may mean for the secularization of our country. It says in the back of my dollar bill, and God we trust. I take it that's less true. I'm concerned. Could you explain to us what you would do or recommend to put this process uh, in a different direction and correct it? And then I will tell you how my Baltimore Orioles will win the American League East next uh, year. Please do. Uh, if there is going to be a rebirth of civilizational morale in Europe, uh, I think it will only come from the rebirth of biblical religion in Europe. And that is likely to happen only from young people. Uh, I remember very well the last night of that World Youth Day in Paris, 1997. I had been staying with French friends uh, who were very close to Cardinal Lustiger, the Archbishop of Paris who had hosted World Youth Day and indeed had helped him prepare uh, the event. And uh, after the last closing mass, this huge million people at Longchamp's race course, we went down to their country place in Normandy to kind of decompress after this, and we're cracking open the first bottle of champagne and flipped on the evening news, and there was the cardinal of Paris 
being interviewed by this utterly flabbergasted uh, French anchorman who kept saying, what is this? What kind of mass hysteria is this? And Lustiger, who had had a great week and was a wonderful man, really had his game face on that night. And he said, you are from a generation which abandoned the faith of your fathers and now experiences hollowness. These young people grew up with nothing, have found Jesus Christ, and now want to explore what that means. Game, set, match, cardinal. That's, that's where some turnaround is going to come from, if it comes in Europe. It seems to me that some places are probably lost already. Mark Stein, the Canadian uh, columnist who has a way with words, said, if you were given a choice between uh, uh, the Islamic Republic of Holland and Pornostan, what would you choose? Uh, I, I think Mark would probably say, now it's not going to be a choice. It's going to be the Islamic Republic of Holland because the, de the, the demographics are simply so overwhelming in that uh, direction. Um, uh, some places, I think, are, are in very, very serious trouble. Uh, whether Britain is able to turn around a very dramatic situation in which there are now large parts of Birmingham, Manchester, indeed London itself, Bristol, where the writ of British law does not run and Sharia law prevails, this is a very serious question for the next uh, uh, British uh, government. It's a little hard to imagine the Islamic Republic of Poland. I don't think that's coming anytime uh, soon. Uh, but um, one measure of whether there is a critical mass of European young people who want a different kind of future than the future that has been created by the generation of their parents, the generation of lost faith, will come in two years at the World Youth Day in Madrid. Uh, if that could be an energizing moment, uh, if there's a sufficient number of European young people there, then something might happen from that. Here, I think we have to be extremely alert to uh, the dictatorship of relativism uh, and specifically to uh, abrogations of religious liberty and the rights of conscience uh, in the name of putatively higher rights like an alleged right to abortion, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is all beginning to affect the health care reform debate, uh, as all of you know. Uh, but it affects many other areas of our public life as well. The marriage debate of which Robbie spoke is obviously uh, caught up in this uh, as well. So that is one line of defense that has to be mounted uh, very directly, it seems to me, uh, right now. Uh, if anyone knows what to do about American public education, I would be happy to hear it. Uh, but it, I think, very much today reflects, as does a lot of our university culture, uh, the world of the cube, uh, which is understood to be the only world of genuine human learning. Uh, and that, of course, needs to continue to be uh, challenged. Um, I think we're doing better here, in fact, than we perhaps have a right to have expected at this, uh, at this point. But we should, not be, um, uh, we should not be naive about what we might call the other side's project is. Uh, it is a project in which people of biblical faith are utterly marginalized publicly, and insofar as is possible without creating literally civil war, uh, are coerced into performing uh, acts, uh, and certainly coerced into paying taxes for the performance of acts that they regard as morally reprehensible. And all this is going to be done in the name of humaneness, uh, civil rights, uh, ba -doop -ba -doop -ba So we have a lot of work uh, left to do. Yes. Hi. Um, you answered part of the question um, that I was going to ask, but I also have a question about how much did state-sponsored Christianity affect Europe today, starting from Constantine? Um, the difference, of course, being America has the free marketplace of religions, right. and it's thriving a little bit better. It's a little healthier than in Europe. 
So is the future of Christianity, the strength of it, really going to be in places like Asia, South Korea, China, Africa, you know, changing the whole matrix of uh, the world religion map? Well, the short answer to the last is obviously yes. Christianity as a global phenomenon is moving south of the equator and, in fact, is already there. I mean, the, the great majority of Christians in the world today live uh, south of the equator or in the global south, uh, broadly so-called. What that is going to do is a number of things. It will accelerate the already rapidly accelerated demise of the liberal Protestant project, as well as, frankly, the liberal Catholic project. Um, the world of the National Catholic Reporter is simply not going to exist 40 years from now, uh, except as a, um, you know, there, there's some nice people there. They're just a little confused. Um, interestingly enough, John Allen, the fine Vatican reporter of the National Catholic Reporter, in his new book on the future, the global future of the Catholic Church, says exactly that, that the people for whom he writes aren't going to exist in the main 40 to 60 years from now. What this will do to the civilizational drama of Europe is really interesting. I mean, uh, it was uh, Bernard Lewis who coined the phrase Eurabia uh, several years ago to refer to a Europe at the end of the 21st century that was essentially an extension of the cultural orbit of the uh, Arab Islamic world. I think that's a real possibility. In, in some uh, parts. Uh, to the first part of the question, the answer is also yes. I uh, imagine, those of you who are Christians here, that the early church is not the Acts of the Apostles. Imagine the early church is us. Um, suppose our Lord, for some odd reason, decides not to return for another 20 or 30 or 40,000 years. Um, Maybe Jonathan Papelbaum will get his act together by then. I don't know. Um, uh, Eric will explain that later. Um, then we're the early church. And if that's the case, then I think it's entirely possible that the period between the Constantinian settlement and uh, the mid-20th century uh, say, the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom, which completes a process, uh, at least in Western Christianity. This is not true in the Orthodox world. Uh, will be seen as a kind of Babylonian captivity for the church. That whatever benefits accrued from establishment, uh, this inevitably had any number of undesirable side effects, the use of coercive state power for purposes of evangelism, the use of coercive state power to settle things that the state has no business settling, like questions of doctrine. You know, the guys that can't fix the potholes should not explain the Trinitarian processions here. <laughs> this is not a good idea. Um, uh, and we are, I think, immensely benefited by having left the embrace of Caesar. We ought to be in a better position, among other things, to tell Caesar, no, that's not yours, uh, which was more difficult under the conditions of um, uh, the, the old uh, European order. Uh, but there are temptations in our new uh, position as well. I, America may come to this part of the European experience sooner. In fact, maybe it already has. I mean, part of what has happened in European Christianity, I think, both Protestant and Catholic, over uh, in the period since the Second World War, is that it took people about 40 years to figure out that the faith, whether that was Lutheran or Reformed or uh, Roman Catholic, uh, was no longer being transmitted by cultural osmosis. It was no longer being transmitted to the next generation by cultural osmosis. You had to actually get into the business of evangelism. And by the time they figured that out, it was too late. 
or was very, very late, and it's never too late, but I mean, it was very, very late in the game. I remember a very distinguished German theologian and cardinal of the Catholic Church who knew of some of my criticisms of, of uh, contemporary European civilization and who, who was very proud to tell me in 2001 that he had just written a book called, I freely translate from the German, Now is the Time to Speak of God. And I wanted to say, Your Eminence, what the hell have you been doing for the last 50 years here, you know? I mean, what is the deal here? I mean, obviously it's always time to speak of God. But I mean, he thought this was a real breakthrough. Now we, now we can do this. And here's, this was not a dumb man, and it was not, he was not a cowardly man. But at a certain point of, you reach a certain cultural tipping point in this process that we broadly call secularization when even people of robust faith begin to believe what people of no faith say about them in the sense of their cultural, social, and ultimately political marginalization. We had six members of the European People's Party, the uh, coalition of Christian Democratic Parties in the European Parliament uh, in Brussels in our office last week. Talking to these people is like trying to give a spine implant to a chocolate eclair. It is a very messy, difficult, and possibly impossible business. These are all very sophisticated people. You'd love to have them for neighbors. They're great dinner conversation, but they have so utterly internalized a sense that we are marginal and our job is just to protect this little bit of of turf that we've managed to uh, hold on to, that um, the idea of going on offense, uh, of, of identifying the utter hollowness of the neutral between worldviews nonsense uh, for the dictatorship of relativism that is, it's just not in their minds. And I think there, there, are, there are real temptations to that in, in the American world of biblical religion today. Um, so, those are some thoughts on that.